Anybody ever struggle getting their kids to clean the room, or is that just me? Am I the only one? Okay. For some reason, it just feels like it's really, really, really hard to get kids to clean their room. Now, typically, I begin with a really simple request. I begin by saying very politely, kindly, calmly, hey, kids, can you clean up your room? Now, Unless they're really, you know, off and in a bad mood, normally I don't get a whole lot of grief for that request, not a ton of complaining. Most of the time, they know that it's important to me, and so they'll say, okay, Dad, yeah, we'll clean up. I say, all right, thanks, and I walk away. And then about 15 minutes goes by, and I go to check on the progress. And when I get there, guess what's happened? Nothing has happened, right? Nothing, because normally the first thing they pick up they go, oh, this is fun, and they start playing with it, and pretty soon it becomes a game, and they get more things out to play with that, right? And it's wor- sometimes it's worse. And so, slightly more forcefully, I make another request. I say, hey, guys, can you please clean your room? And then normally they go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah we'll, we'll get to it. Okay, we'll, we'll do it. So I walk away, 15 minutes or so, come back, and can you guess what's happened? Nothing. So around this time, right, there's no longer a request. Now it's a demand. It's a little more forceful. I say, hey, clean your room. And they all right, all right, we'll do it. And they go back. And then you can see where it goes. It progresses and it gets worse and worse. And I'm more harsh and, you know, more frustrated over time. And this goes on for a while. And after a while, like, I'm frustrated and I'm upset. And so it means... I need to take things to the next level. Now, I know that as parents, we never have like meetings, right? About, hey, how do we do this as parents and handle this? But it's just like, there's camaraderie. So I'm not, I know I'm not the only one who's done this, but normally, right, when you take it to the next level, there's a thing us parents do. We end up going to the room with the black garbage bag, right? And we go, right? And it's open. We say, hey, if you don't clean up your room, Uh, I'm going to start picking things up, and I'm going to clean it up for you, and I'm taking your stuff to the curb. So clean up your room, right? That's normally where we kind of hit that level. Now, if kids are wise, they will know that when we hit to the black trash bag, that's really the point where they now have to start cleaning up, if they're wise. But on rare occasion, there is a child or two, I will not name names, who like to test Right, And they'll see the black garbage bag and they'll go, you know what, I bet you they're not really going to start packing stuff up. And so they'll test our limits and they'll maybe not start cleaning. And then, so parents, what do we do? When we make a threat, we got to deliver. Okay, just know this. If you back down, they'll, they'll never, you'll lose all sense of credibility for the rest of your life. So what you do is you go, all right. And you start picking up stuff and putting it in the bag. And pretty soon now tensions have escalated. And normally, right, this is what happens. The typical response when you get to this point is a child will say, hey, you can't do that. That's my stuff. And that's where we get them, parents, right? We know how to respond at that point. What do we do when they say that? We say, oh, did you say your stuff? This is your stuff? And then you say, you ain't got no job, right? All your stuff came from me. So you better pick it up or I'll do it for you and take it to the curb. That's what you do, right, parents? We, we got to kind of get a little bit, right, gangsta with them a little bit just to make sure they know we mean business. Now, 
I say all that, and, uh, and I, that, that statement we often will say as parents, right? Everything you have, it came from me. Uh, I want to talk about that for a second. Now, I realize, you know, some of you are maybe judging my parenting. I realize that maybe there are kinder ways to approach this. I also, you know, I've had enough college courses to have some child psychology background. I know that it's important to have kids have their own things, like possession. That's part of development. I get it, all right? But here's the point. At the end of the day, their stuff, it it did really come from me. All their stuff, it came from their father, which means ultimately they aren't free to do what they want with the things they have because it came from me. And I have some say in that. So they have some responsibility. Uh, they, They have to have some obligation to be a good steward of the things they have. They can't just do what they want. That's true of my children, right? But I want to say this morning, it's also true of me, and it's true of you. You see, the bottom line is, everything that you have, all your possessions, the home that you live in, all the money that's in your bank account, everything that's in your wallet, all your stuff, it came to you because the Lord gave it to you. It all came from your father. Which means if all your stuff, everything you have came from the Lord, it means that you have some responsibility. You have an obligation to be a good steward of the things that you have. You can't just do what you want with your stuff because it came to you from your father. And so we're going to see that, I believe, firsthand through the scriptures this morning about the importance of what it means to be responsible for the things that our Father has given us and and to be good stewards of those things. We're going to see that firsthand in the book of 1 Timothy. So if you want to follow along with me, we're in the book of 1 Timothy, which is near the end of your Bibles uh, in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're at this morning. Uh, So if you go maybe to the last, I don't know, eighth of your Bible or something near the very end, we have 1 Timothy. And then 2 Timothy follows, and so that's where it's at. And you can just kind of search for that. If you want to use a seatback Bible, great. We'd love for you to use a seatback Bible this morning. Um, If you don't own a physical Bible, you can take that Bible home with you today. That's totally fine. We'd love for you to have that. Those of you tuning in online, welcome. Uh, For you, if you'd like to use our mobile app, we've got a built-in Bible there. Also, we've got the sermon notes section in the mobile app. If you've never used it, that's very helpful. You just can type in all the points, and then you can email it to yourself, and you can take notes. And so, great way to to do that. But whatever you do, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're at. And as you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want to remind you that we are in a series that we began last week. It's called Reset. And the purpose of this series is to take a moment to pause when there are areas of our life that aren't going right, and we're we're supposed to hit the reset button and think about those things the way that God designed. So this whole series is all about starting over when things aren't going the way that they should. And we're covering four different major areas of our life. Last week, we talked about the topic of work, and we talked about when work becomes something that it shouldn't. Uh, that it shouldn't be in our life. We stop, we hit the reset button, and we look at work from God's perspective. Uh, In this series, we're going to also talk about relationships. We're going to talk about faith. But this morning, I want to talk about a different subject. Today, let's talk about money. I want to talk about money. I want to talk about our finances and uh, think about that from God's perspective. Now, as I begin, I want to clarify something right out of the gate. Number one, money is not a bad thing. Sometimes as Christians, we get this notion that money is evil. The Bible does not say that money is evil. Money is a good thing. 
And when money is used properly, it's both a blessing to us and it's also a blessing to others around us. Money is a good thing. It's an important thing. But at times, at times, money can cause some problems in our life. Money can create some serious challenges for a lot of us. In fact, studies show that one of the leading causes for divorce or for depression or even suicide, it can all be traced directly to problems with money. Money can be incredibly problematic in life. Now, having a lack of money is certainly a big issue. If there are people who lack the sufficient amount of money needed to make ends meet, that's a major problem. Uh, In this country, that's a problem. Perhaps in this church, that's a problem for people. I do believe that. Uh, Sometimes if if we lack the the necessary amount of money, that's a big challenge. However, if you've never traveled around the world, I would just suggest to you, uh, in times I've traveled and I've seen third world countries, I thought poverty, when I saw the U.S., I thought I knew what it looked like from my perspective. But when you go to certain places in the world where they have very little at all and large population of people are completely broke, I've seen poverty to a level I've never seen before overseas. And so I would just suggest to you that even our perspective of what true poverty is, we live in the richest nation in the world uh, and, and the richest people that have ever lived are us today. And so what I would just suggest to you that even though poverty is a big issue, I would suggest to you that at least in our context, perhaps the biggest issue in America isn't related to need. Perhaps the biggest issue in America is related to greed. To greed. The reality is for so many of us, the pursuit of more money is something that we are just driven by. After all, what's the American dream, right? It's getting everything we want and you know, having this happy little story where we can have the white picket fence and all these luxuries, we often tell ourselves, you know, if we can just have a little bit more, if we can just get a little bit, we, we tell ourselves, man, if we get that dream house we've always wanted, then we'll be happy. And then we get the dream house, and then when we get the house, we're kind of like, well, I'm still not happy. What's, what's up? And so what we do is we go, if I can just get that cabin by the lake, then I'll be content, and then everything will be great in life. And so we get to the cabin at the lake, and we're not content. And so we go, you know, if I can just get that boat that I can put in the lake and then I'll be satisfied. And then we do that and we're not satisfied. Notice how it's a vicious cycle. The pursuit of more, of having more, owning more, more and more and more and more and more. This is an appetite that's insatiable. It's a thirst that can never be quenched. It's why so many people in America, right, maybe if they're struggling with poverty, it's not because they never had enough. It's because they spent money that wasn't theirs to spend. The issue of debt is a major problem in this country. We often spend money we don't have on things we don't need. And as a result, we have all these challenges in life because enough is never enough. Greed is a major problem for a number of us, and perhaps we don't even realize it. It's just our hardwiring. We're raised in a society that's consumeristic. It's all about more, more, more. But perhaps this morning, God has something to say about this. Perhaps this morning, whether we realize it or not, we all should hit the reset button. And instead of thinking about money from our own perspective, we need to start thinking about money from God's 
perspective. And that's what we're going to see in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, if you're there, we're going to jump right in just to mention before you jump in so we know kind of where we're at in the Bible, what's going on in this book of 1 Timothy. Just a reminder about the New Testament and the story of the New Testament. We have Jesus in the Gospels who lives this perfect life. Then he dies on the cross. Then he rises from the dead. And then after that, he ascends into heaven. And then after that period of time, he sends his Holy Spirit and pours it out upon followers of Jesus. And that's in the book of Acts. And then in the book of Acts, empowered by the Holy Spirit, all these ordinary people are transformed and they go out into the world and they're preaching the good news of Jesus to all these different people. They're planting churches and going on these different missionary journeys. And one of the people who's transformed by that good news of Jesus is a man named Saul. Saul was somebody who murdered Christians. He hated Christians. But then all of a sudden, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus that changed his life forever. And Saul, who later was called Paul, started traveling around the ancient world, planting churches and preaching the good news of Jesus all over the place. And so he goes on a first missionary journey, then a second missionary journey. He expands even further territories. There he meets a young man named Timothy. Timothy was a young man in the area of Lystra and Derbe. That's where he grew up. Uh, Timothy was somebody who was trained in the scriptures. His mother and grandmother poured into him. And this guy was a young man who was already pretty mature. And he joined Paul in his second missionary journey. And they kept traveling around. Finally, Paul goes on a third missionary journey. After the third missionary journey, Paul gets sent to Rome where he's arrested. During this time, Timothy, he ends up stopping in the area of Ephesus. So he's left behind in Ephesus. Ephesus is a place that there's a church that Paul helped plant there. And Timothy's job was to be a young pastor in the church of Ephesus. Now, Paul, after he was imprisoned, he was released and he traveled around. And they believe that at some point he wrote this letter after his first imprisonment, before his last imprisonment, he wrote this letter to Timothy to instruct him how to be a pastor in the city of Ephesus. Now, the city of Ephesus, which is in uh, ancient Asia Minor, it's in modern-day Turkey, is a port city, uh, a major area in the ancient world where lots of different people traveled. And so Timothy was staying behind there, and he's getting this letter from Paul. He's learning how to be a pastor. And it's important that he got this letter because this is such a big city. So many people were traveling through that Timothy was dealing with some problems because of that. You see, in the city of Ephesus... False teachers had crept into the church. It's such a big city that some of the people were itinerant ministers that stopped there and stayed for a little while and traveled. And some people settled there. Now, some pastors and teachers were good, like Timothy, but some were bad. Some were false teachers. And Paul wrote this letter to warn Timothy how to deal with the false teachers. And according to this letter, some of these false teachers who crept into the church, they were distorting the good news of Jesus. They were changing the message of the gospel. Why? Because if they changed the message of the gospel, they found out that if they changed it enough, they could find ways to make money off of Jesus. Notice their motivation here. It was motivated by greed. And so what Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 6, he warns Timothy about the fact that some false teachers, they thought that godliness quote-unquote, not real godliness, but fake godliness was a means of gain. Translation, they used phony religion to make a buck. That's what the false teachers did. Now, maybe some of you have experienced this in life. Maybe you've been connected to a church in the past where people were distorting the good news of Jesus and they were doing it for financial gain. 
Maybe you're somebody who's turned on the television at certain channels at certain points at night and you've seen those televangelists who go and proclaim this prosperity gospel or they give a false gospel and they try to get money from people. We've probably all seen, you know, weird things. People say, oh, you know, you spend $29.99, you can get a prayer cloth that we've touched and we're going to send to you and God will answer your prayers and bless you. Like these kinds of things people preach. And it's false. It's prosperity. It's, 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 it's false teaching to make money, and it's terrible. The cra- it's crazy the things that people will do to, to make money under the pretense or the guise of religion. Sad. And people believe it. They eat it up. People will spend $29.99. They'll buy some for all their Christmas, you know, their grandkids for Christmas. It's like that's what people do. And this is why people today are skeptical of the church because so often people ruin it for legitimate churches that actually want to serve God and spread the gospel. Some people ruin it because what they do is they're all about money. And that's why people today often believe the church is all about money. They just want people's money. I hate the church. I, I actually have some experiences with churches that did this in the past. I was in high school, I was the drummer in a Christian band. And we would sometimes play in different churches. And I went to one church one time that I didn't know at the time was, was pretty prosperity-driven. And uh, the pastor was a woman who was preaching this message. And at one point, she took up an offering. And she said during the offering, I kid you not, she said this. She said, if you give to the Lord, he's going to bless you with so much. And then she said that She said, I gave to the Lord, and the Lord gave me an Escalade. Seriously. And I thought in my head, man, I mean, I was going to a church at the time. I was faithfully giving to the church. And I was like, I'm thinking in my head, I'm driving around a beat up 1994 uh, Ford Aerostar. I don't know what I did wrong, but an Escalade would be nice. You know, I was thinking in my head, like what's, but people do that for selfish gain. And here, Paul reminds Timothy that godliness, right, quote unquote, if it's motivated by greed, then it's not really a gain, If godliness is all about making a buck, then it's not really a good thing. No, in contrast to that, he says says this. He said, godliness, though, with contentment, where you're okay with what you have, where it's not motivated by greed, it is great gain. And he goes on to say this, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. With these will be content. You see, the first thing I want to focus on this morning, the first section of our message, number one, I want to talk about the limitations of money. The limitations of money. You see, according to Paul, we shouldn't seek contentment through money. Why? Well, first of all, it doesn't satisfy. Listen, money will never satisfy the longing heart Money, the, the, the desire for money, it's an insatiable appetite. It always just wants a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. You're never going to be content through money. I've shared this story before, but John D. Rockefeller at the turn of the century, richest man in the world, and he, was, he started Standard Oil Company. At one point, he was asked by a reporter, all right, John, you've got a ton of money. When is enough going to be enough? Right? When is it going to be enough? And John was quoted as saying, well, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, then it'll be enough. It's always just a little bit more. That's the way that greed works. We shouldn't seek contentment through money because money can never satisfy. That's the reason we shouldn't pursue that. But there's another reason, according to Paul, we shouldn't seek contentment through money is because not only does it not satisfy, but it also doesn't last. 
Money is a temporary thing that we have in a very short window of our existence. It's not a lasting thing. Notice how he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. You were born with nothing and you will die. You will go to the grave with nothing. You cannot take it with you. Greed is a temporary, fleeting, fruitless pursuit. It does not last because money is limited. We can't take it with us. We can't. And so instead of pursuing something that's so limited, instead of centering our lives around something that's so insufficient, something that won't last, Paul says, be content with what you have. I want you to know that contentment is a mindset. It has nothing to do with money. Nothing. In fact, when Paul wrote a letter to another church, the Philippians, he said, I've learned the secret of contentment. I'm content in any and every circumstance, whether I have a bunch of stuff or whether I have nothing. I've learned the secret of this. Contentment has nothing to do with money. In fact, we're going to talk about the secret of contentment later on in a a message in a later series this fall. We'll talk about that later, so I don't want to talk about that now. But the bottom line here is money doesn't satisfy. It doesn't lead to contentment. At the end of the day, it doesn't last and it's insufficient. It doesn't have the ability. Money is limited. So don't center your life around something that's so limited. That's number one. That's the first thing we see. But the second thing we see is Paul continues and picks up now in verse nine is this, not just the limitations of money, but now he talks about the lure of money, the lure of money. Notice what he says in verse nine. He says this, but those who desire to be rich, those who are motivated by greed, They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You see, the bottom line here is money can be incredibly dangerous. Money can cause significant issues in your life. It's interesting. uh, In the second century, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, he was quoted as saying this, Money is the beginning of all problems. This is true, right? This is a really good quote. Similarly, in 1996, the notorious B.I.G. had a quote. He said, "Mo' money, mo' problems. Same quote, just different people. Money wreaks havoc in people's lives because when they're motivated by it, Paul says they fall into temptation, Now, I love how he uses the language here about falling into temptation. This is helpful. We don't fall into anything on purpose, do we? No, a a fall happens when you're walking or doing something and you're unaware of your surroundings and you don't see that there's a step there or you don't see there's a, a hole somewhere and you fall into something. That always happens by accident. It's a misstep. Nobody intentionally falls into stuff. It happens to them when they're unaware, when they're ignorant. And so what begins is something unintentional. What begins is something that's accidental because we're ignorant of the fact that money can be a dangerous thing. We begin to get our mindset in a certain way. We tend to fall because of money, because it's dangerous. We fall into temptation. And when we do that, notice how once we fall into temptation, there's a snare. We're ensnared by money. We're trapped by it. We're captured by it. And when we're captured by money, that then leads to the next step, which is destruction. It leads to all sorts of terrible things. Notice how Paul says this. It it leads to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Man, the love of money, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of greed, it's dangerous. 
Now, there are numerous stories in the Bible that describe this for us, how greed leads to destruction. One of the most common stories is in Joshua chapter 7. If you know that story, you know that earlier in the book of Joshua, the people of God were rescued from Egypt. They were supposed to conquer the, the promised land. They crossed the Jordan on dry ground. They get to this massive city, right? The walls of Jericho are huge. The city of Jericho is massive. They're afraid at first, how can we conquer this big city? The Lord says, well, trust me, walk around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, walk around it seven times, blowing your trumpets and shouting. And when you do that, the city walls will fall. And so as soon as the city walls fall, the Lord says, when you go in, plunder everything, take everything, take over. But if you find gold or silver, the Lord said, take those things. Those are devoted things that are for me. And so take those things and bring them to the temple and bring them to the treasury there. So any gold and silver, it belongs to the Lord. Those are the instructions. So what does Israel do? They march around seven days. On the seventh day, they march around seven times. They shout, they blow the trumpets, the walls go down, they plunder the city. And then there's a guy named Achan who finds some gold and silver. And instead of taking the, those devoted things, as the Lord said, and bringing them to the temple, Achan brings them back to his tent. He digs a hole and he hides them. And if you know the end of the Achan story, you know that after he hides them, the Lord who knows everything, who sees everything, he reveals to the people of Israel that someone has now taken the things that are devoted to the Lord. And as a result, Achan is stoned to death. And that is the end of Achan's story. Greed often leads to destruction. We could look at other stories, the story of Ananias and Sapphira who lie to the Holy Spirit, who say that they are going to give everything to the Lord and they don't. They hold back for themselves part of their property and instantly they're struck dead. Other stories than that, but, but the point is greed leads to destruction. You don't just have to look at the Bible to see that. That happens in life. You ever watch like Dateline or 48 Hours? What is every story about? Somebody gets really greedy and they either, you know, they find out there's a life insurance policy against their wife and so they poison her or something like that. And what they do is they end up ruining other people's lives. They ruin their lives. In the end, it's they're in prison or they're dead or whatever. It's, it leads to destruction. That's the way it works. Greed is destructive. Money can be dangerous when it lures people. That's the second thing we see in our passage. Number two, the lure of money. But now Paul goes into one more thing before we get to our final point. So one more point before the final point. He's going to talk about something else. He's going to give another warning. Not just about the limitations of money, not just about the lure of money, but now number three about the love of money. The love of money. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, we read about these warnings elsewhere in Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, we're told uh, to be careful against the love of money, to free ourselves from the love of money, it says there. Now, why are we commanded to do this? Is it because money is bad? No, we've already established money is not good, or money is good. It's actually a good thing, but the love of money is what's bad. According to Paul, it's the root of all kinds of evils, the love of money is. And it's terrible in God's sight. So the question is, what does it look like practically to love money? Let's get pragmatic here. What does it really mean practically to be in love with money? Well, Jesus helps us with this in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember there, he says that you cannot love both God and money. You cannot serve just God and money. Why? They're competing loyalties. If you love money and serve money and worship money above all else, there's no more room for God in your life. When we crown money the king of our heart, we functionally dethroned God. 
The point here is that a love of money is idolatry. It's idolatry, which is why we read that the love of money is something that it's made people wander away from the faith. It's it's evil. It's idolatry. And yet, we just love it so much sometimes, don't we? Man, our heart is so drawn to money. We just love it. We spend all our time working for it, thinking about it, talking about it, dreaming about it with our spouse. Money, money, money. It becomes our God. In fact, maybe you being so fixated on money, maybe that's crept into other areas of your life. We've talked about this in this series. I I mentioned last week that we talked about the topic of work. And I said, I know that some people in this series probably want to come to the relationship uh, message because I know that's one of the pressing things that, especially during the season, many people are struggling with. Oh, we wish it was the relationship week. And we talked about work last week. And again, now we're talking about money, but just think about it. When money becomes your God, how does that affect every other area of your life? It affects your marriage. It affects your friendships. It affects your faith. That's what happens. The love of money, it just means we want more and more and more. It's fleeting. It's idolatrous. And until that desire, we keep pursuing that desire until it consumes us. It tears us apart and shipwrecks our faith. And so, beloved, listen, if this is you, if, if any of these things are describing you, right? You think that money has more power than it really does, but it's really limited. You think that money is not that dangerous, but the truth is it's luring you. You think you got things under control and you're worshiping God, but the truth is you really love money. If this is your experience, what do you do? You keep just doing things the way you've always done them? I think the Lord wants us to stop, to reevaluate the way that we think about money, and to hit reset. I mean, do we really want to do this the right way? To start over and think about our finances from a godly way, I believe that this is what God wants us to do. And so after we've seen these three things so far, the limitations of money, the lure of money, and the love of money, the last thing we need to recognize, number four, the Lord of money. This is how we hit reset. It's remembering the Lord of money. You see, we have a sovereign God, a sovereign Lord who's over everything, including money. He is sovereign over all. He has given us everything that we need. He's promised to provide for us everything we have. It came from him. And Paul wants us to to remember this. He wants us not to focus on money, but to focus on him, the provider of everything that we have. Notice what Paul says in verses 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be puffed up or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He says, but instead to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, the truth is, when our hope is centered on money, we have the wrong foundation. We've built our life on the wrong foundation. Paul tells us, don't place your hope in money. So uncertain. Don't place your hope in that. Instead, place your hope in the Lord, who is certain. 
Place your hope in Jesus who richly provides you with everything that you have and all that you need. You see, we, send, we tend to think of our money as our money, our stuff. And sure, you may have worked hard for your money, but the truth is everything you have is from your Father. Everything you have is from the Lord, which means that you have a responsibility, an obligation to be a good steward of the gifts that God has given you. It means that God has a greater purpose for your money, a greater plan for your money. Notice how Paul says that God provides us with money, not just to enjoy for ourselves, which let me just say and clarify here. We should enjoy our money. That is a blessing from God. I'm not saying it's you're sinful if you take a vacation. You're sinful if you have a nice car. That's not my point. Enjoy the money you have, but know that it's for a lot more than just your enjoyment. It's not just for you. It's to do good in the world. We're commanded to be rich in good works. To use the blessings that God has given us for the right purposes. To bless people, to serve them, to help them. Money is a tool that God wants us to use to do good in the world. In fact, notice how Paul reminds us of the importance of generosity here. He goes on to say that we need to be generous and ready to share. How many of us, when we have something, when we receive something, money, that we've worked for, our money, we just want to cling. We want to hold it. We want to spend it on our desires, our passions. This is not what we're called to do. Listen, generosity, giving, this is not a recommendation in Scripture. This is an expectation of Christians. It's an expectation. Why is it an expectation? Because the truth is, God was generous with us, not just in providing us with the things that we need and the finances that we need. God was so generous to us that when we were completely spiritually bankrupt and had nothing to offer God, he sent his one and only son who was the full payment for sin. Incredibly costly. He he gave his son Jesus. He didn't hold him back. He didn't cling to him. No, he freely and generously gave us his son as a payment for our sin. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, he rescued us and transformed us and blessed us richly with all these blessings in Christ. So how can we not be generous people? How can we not look at the world around us and say, yeah, I'm going to give, I'm going to share. I'm going to be generous because I have a generous God who's blessed me. Generosity is not a recommendation. It's an expectation. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say if you give. He says when you give. That's what his disciples do. And when we do that, Paul says, you know, even this is the mindset we need to change. When we do that, when we give, sometimes we think, oh man, I don't want to give that because I don't want to lose. Paul clarifies this. When you give of your earthly treasures now, which are temporary, you gain heavenly reward, which is permanent. Giving is not loss, it's an investment in a surefire future. Notice how he talks about that you're, when you give, when you're generous, you're storing up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future in the age to come. And so the bottom line here is this. When it comes to money, be incredibly careful. Be incredibly careful. Because the truth is money is limited. It will not satisfy. It will not last. So be careful. Also, money tends to lure us in. We fall into temptation because of money, and then that leads to destruction. So be careful. 
Thirdly, we should not love money because when our hearts, affections go toward money, that's something that shipwrecks our faith. So be incredibly careful. If you've had the wrong mindset and attitude with money in the past, stop what you're doing. Hit the reset button and look at money the way that God intends. And this is, I believe, where Paul is going with this whole discussion here. It leads to this big idea. This is the point he's trying to make. It's this. Everything we have is from the Lord and for the Lord. Everything you have is from your Father. And it's for Him. Don't forget that. Your money, your stuff, it's not really yours. It's your Father who gave it to you. And God doesn't want to have to come to a point where he's, you know, bringing out the black trash bag and saying, all right, so you get all this. God wants to warn us in advance before we come to a point of destruction. God wants to tell us, listen, wake up, people. I've blessed you immeasurably. Use your blessings to bless the world and to give back. This is what God wants to remind us. Everything we have is from the Lord and it's for the Lord. And I was thinking about that a little bit this morning and just thinking about my own life. And it's interesting, you know, I've been really blessed. Um, I have, uh, I've once slept on the street. That was when I was in college and I got locked out of a train station at night. So it wasn't because, I, I mean, I had some, right? I've had that experience before. I've been hungry before uh, as a college student, but, you know, there's always ramen and stuff like that. For the most part, I've been blessed, but there have been moments in my life where I, my faith has been tested. I've been stretched a little bit. I've struggled financially, especially getting newly married. I, I have memories in the past of maybe, you know, not being able to pay a bill and praying and asking for God's help. And it's amazing how God provides just in amazing ways. I've experienced his provision before. You know, what's funny though, is when I'm in need, I turn to the Lord in prayer about money. And God shows up and he, he helps. But when I have enough, or when I have more than enough, how often do I receive that and go, man, let me turn to the Lord in prayer and see now what I'm going to do with this money? Never. I don't do that. I pray when I need things. But I rarely ever pray when God has blessed me and given me more than I need. Man, that's not okay. And if that's been your experience as well, man, stop. Hit the reset button and say, Lord, Everything I have is from you. What would you desire of my, my blessings I've received? How should I live? What would honor you and serve you above all else? This is how we need to think. This is what God's word is telling us to do. Not to pursue greed as a means of some sort of thing in our life that satisfies because it'll never do that. Instead, we need to stop, hit the reset button and say, Lord, I want to, to serve you and honor you with what you've given me. You've given me everything. Everything I have is from you. It's all from you, Father. So let me be responsible. Let me be a good steward of your gifts. And let me bless others and honor you in all that I have. That's what we do. That's what we do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your provision, for your goodness. Lord, you are just such an abundantly incredible provider. I can't just thank you enough for how you provided for me personally, how you provided for this church in the past. Lord, you are truly the God 
who has the cattle on a thousand hills. And Lord, I realize that for so many of us, we've experienced so much blessing in life that maybe a lot of us have, have never really spent much time being in need. I do pray for those who are in need right now, that Lord, that they would trust in you, that you would provide for them, that they would be content in the things that they have. Um, but Lord, that you would just um, help even this church to be a, a church that really gives benevolently to people who are in need, that we might be the means of your provision. So we just pray for that. But also, Lord, I, I pray in particular for probably the majority of the people in the room who really have enough, more than enough. Help us to be faithful. Help us to honor you with what we have. Lord, the things that we have, these are fleeting. These are fading. These will not last. We cannot take them with us. What is sure, what is guaranteed is what we have in you. And what you've promised us in the age to come, when we steward the things that you've given us in this life well. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful. And for those of us in the room who've just been so um, drawn to money, it's a stronghold in their life. Maybe they so love money that it's completely tearing apart their marriage or their family. Lord, I pray that through the power of the Spirit, you might release them from that stronghold. That, Father, that through the power of the Spirit, you might take that false God and replace it with yourself. Lord, I pray that through the power of the Spirit, they would be able to stop and hit the reset button this morning and say, Lord, I no longer want to serve the God of money. It is a God who overpromises and always underdelivers. I want you. I want to taste and see that you're good and find my satisfaction in you. So Lord, I pray for that this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness toward us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.